All right. Can you hear me tonight? Okay, I want to take on a, a subject briefly uh, this evening on, um, on the carnal Christian. Actually, my whole thing is not necessarily on that particular uh, understanding of it. But the point being uh, tonight that in all the questions that I'm asking and answering is that when somebody does come to believe in Jesus Christ, there is not only a profession of faith that takes place, however that may be, but there is afterwards a continuance in the faith fruit that is produced by that faith, an endurance that comes from that relationship of faith in Christ that continues onward to the end of someone's life. It doesn't mean that there's not breaks of sin and that we don't have to deal with sometimes uh, of lack of growth or ignorance or somewhat of a time of backsliding, or even the chastisement of God that may become upon us because we slip away from walking with the Lord. But nonetheless, in all those things, we come back to walking with the Lord and resume that. And many times when that happens, we come back even stronger with more resolve to follow Christ, to live for him right to the end. But there are some that say there's such a thing as a carnal Christian, the theory goes something like this, that after you invite Christ to come into your life, it's possible for you to take control of your life again. Or even further, the carnal Christian philosophy says, even though there may be no proof of salvation right up into the end of someone's life, but because they made a profession of faith, that they are saved eternally, and it was because of their salvation experience that they get some assurance that they will spend eternity with Christ. Now, to me, thinking of that from the perspective perspective of the Word of God has to be challenged as something that is um, not necessarily correct teaching. In fact, this teaching actually comes out of the Schofield Bible. In the Schofield Notes, that's where it originated. And people, uh, of course, looked at the notes and advanced it, and therefore now you have a third category of believer, or a third category of persons. Right? You have the natural man, which would be the unsaved man. You have the carnal man, which would be the man who, of course, they say is a Christian, has invited Christ into their life, but is not trusting God, and actually is in rebellion against the lordship of Christ, and has taken control of their life again. And then you have, of course, a third category, uh, and that is the spiritual man, and that is the saved man. Now, there are several questions that I want to raise and then try to answer briefly from the Word of God, which helps us address this subject. Whether there is or is not a carnal Christian uh, taught in Scripture, the first question would be, does the Bible 
actually teach that there are three kinds of people, or does it teach something else? A second question would be, can a Christian live a wholly fruitless life and still be considered a true Christian? And then a third question is, is it possible to have faith without works or works without faith? So those are the questions I want to, as I said, briefly address and just touch on them this evening. Here's the first question. Does the Bible actually teach that there is three kinds of people, or does it teach something else? Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14. These are the verses that uh, the advocates would use for the carnal Christian philosophy. And it says this, and let's, let's look at it. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, But the natural man, of course that would be the unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now we would have to say, first of all, the Bible does teach there is such thing as a natural man, and a natural man right there is a person who is unconverted. They're not saved. Right? They're, they're unregenerate. All right? And then it says this in verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. All right? So in those passages of Scripture, we see that we do have a second uh, type of person, and that's the spiritual person. Now, the spiritual person is the person who is a saved person. Uh, But I would like to add to that, that a spiritual person is not a person who's come uh, to the point where they have complete knowledge of their spiritual life and do not need to grow anymore. No, you may be a spiritual person and be a babe in Christ. And you may be a spiritual person and grow to be a young man in Christ. You may be a spiritual person and grow to be a, a father in Christ. All right? And... So every, at every level of being spiritual, there is still more to learn, right? There's still more growth to take place. So the natural man simply means uh, the, the word in, in the Greek uh, has to pertain, it just means to pertain to life, natural, uh, a life of the physical world rather than the spiritual, an unspiritual person, an unsaved person. And then spiritual is really means pertaining to the spirit. Uh, meaning that the person is spiritual whose power of judgments are directed by the Spirit. So here's somebody, in a sense, another way of saying it, as in Galatians, they're walking by the Spirit, right? They're walking by the Spirit. That's their desire. That's the way they go. And then, notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, we get the sense of an introduction of the word sarcos, or flesh. And it says... And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshy. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Now, here's the introduction of the word uh, flesh, where people have concluded that this word uh, would be the carnal 
Christian. Now, I would say this, that these passages are not teaching that there are three permanent categories of people. Actually, there are only two permanent categories. And of course, what are they? The two permanent ones are the natural man, the unsaved man. He would be the self-centered man. And then you have the spiritual man, who is the saved person, who still needs to grow in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then you also have, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 9, might as well look there while we're uh, talking about this, right? And you have in this passage also two categories, not a third, and that would be someone who walks after the flesh, which, of course, in Romans 8 would be that a person would be unconverted, and then you have a person who walks after the Spirit, who would be, of course, those who are in Christ. So only two divisions. Look at verse number 1 of Romans chapter 8. It says, For there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it it was, though in the flesh God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, and the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh, verse 7, is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able, able to do so, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, there's the categories in Romans chapter 8. There's only two. Somebody who is walking after the flesh, unconverted, hostile towards God, can't please God, doesn't want to even think about God, has no room even to retain God in his thinking. He lives life with God absent. And then there's the person who walks in the Spirit. They're Christ. Who are they? They want to please God. They don't want to be hostile to the Spirit anymore. All right? And so, therefore, they want to walk in the Spirit. So only two classes there. And then there's another passage that I'd like you to turn to quickly, and that's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 through 24. And again, you only have two divisions, not a third. And it says in Romans 5, verse 17, For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you, that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not on the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you walk in the Spirit, let us also 
If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So, again, in that, those passages of Scripture, we only have two categories. We have the person who is walking after the flesh, who is the unconverted person. And we have the person walking in the Spirit. But we also have introduced in that passage the struggle that the person walking in the Spirit has. And that struggle is against the flesh. The passions, the old passions and desires of the flesh. That struggle is always going to be evident. We're going to have that struggle to the end of our life. But as far as having a third category, it's not there found there. It's not found in Romans. It's not found in Corinthians. It's not really found anywhere in the Bible. So we have to say that um, the carnal Christian uh, philosophy cannot be a biblical teaching. In fact, uh, the carnal man found back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which I already read, and then also uh, in down to chapter 3, the passage they are using, all that it is saying is that Christians can and do sometimes, in some areas of their lives, act like unconverted worldly people. But, let me add this, it is not a dominant characteristic of one's life as a true believer. In fact, look over to chapter 1 of Corinthians, where here's the people he's writing to. Look at, look at chapter 1, verse number 2. To the church, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. He's talking to people that are born again, believers. They're sanctified in Christ. They they called out to Christ as Lord. So what is he saying in the 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 to 4 passage of Scripture? He's really telling them in chapter 3, verse number 4, stop having unwholesome divisions amongst yourself when you have unity of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. He's saying, listen, in that one area, you are acting like fleshly men, like babes who don't know anything. When you have all knowledge, when you are sanctified in Christ. All right, that's what he's saying. Stop, stop it. Living contrary to your standing in Christ over this particular issue. Look what he says in verse number 3 and 4. For you are still fleshy, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not, are you not fleshy? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? He says, stop this stupid division-making. He's rebuking them, actually, to what? To stop being infants and grow in your knowledge. That's what he's doing. This is not an ongoing uh, rejection of Christ going on and living in the flesh uh, without regard to what the Lord says. No, that's not what's happening here at all whatsoever. You can't even use these passages of scriptures to, to say that. 
So see, an, an examination of this section of Scripture and others reveal that there are not three kinds of people, but only two. Those who are, matter of fact, right there in Corinthians, if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, this is a passage of Scripture that gives another uh, only two categories of people. Actually, one is mentioned, one is um, assumed, and it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. So the scripture there is viewing all people as either in Christ, and before you were in Christ, you were what? In Adam, right? In other words, all who are in Christ are a new creation, and all who are in Adam are still linked with the old things the old things being the old Adamic nature with all its old corruption, its old habits, its old way of living, its old sinful being, being enslaved to and loving their sin, actually. Those who are now associated with Christ, though, are in Christ and find themselves in a new position, in a new sphere. It says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three. you don't have to turn there, let me just read it, for... As in Adam all die, also in, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, whom became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So what are the categories? Categories are either you're in Christ or in Adam. There's not a third stuck in there. So not only in Romans and Galatians and Corinthians and Romans again and then again in another a place in, in 2 Corinthians, you find uh, that there is really not a, a third category. Now, if somebody does believe that there is such a thing as carnal Christian and they can just go on uh, through their, in their life without proof of salvation at all whatsoever, uh, then they sometimes believe there needs to be some kind of second work of grace because the first work of grace didn't work. All right? Also, they divide Christ. They can take Christ as Savior, but they have an option whether to take him as Lord. And yet, right there in Corinthians chapter 1, we see that they, uh, verse number 2, it says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, their Lord and ours. So there's really, you, you can't really divide Christ into Savior and Lord as I can take him as my Savior and then somewhere make him my Lord and then I obey him. That's, that's not biblical either. That's, a, that's just like a second level discipleship that uh, is foreign to Scripture. Christ, you can't divide Christ like that. When you trust Christ, call on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, right? So it's a calling on the Lord to be master of my life. Lord, save me so you take control of my life and you become my Lord, and I can follow you. So there's also um, no turning from sin. There's no turning from idolatry. 
uh, if that happens. You can just go on in your sin, do what you want, do what you did before, and just because you made a profession of faith, you're safe eternally? I wouldn't want to land on that doctrine and give somebody some kind of false security that they're saved when they're not, right? So the Christian is a person who can stand and declare, I've been saved. My whole position has changed from one of being unsaved to one of being saved, from one of being condemned to one being free from God's condemnation. In other words, there is a move that has taken place, a person is moved from one place to another, from the place of not being a Christian to the place of becoming a Christian. And so, in truth, God is not simply patching up the old, he is creating a new. Old things are discarded, old things pass away. It means to cast them aside as no longer being a part of us. That's what a believer is. It was a guy named... Richie, who says, if your sinful nature has not been crucified by the grace of Christ, you are not a carnal Christian, you are no Christian and need to become one. So scripture makes it, I believe, perfectly clear, uh, especially if you look at, again at Corinthians, and he, he's, re- remember, in Corinthians he's rebuking them, yes, of not casting off that, those sins that were in their culture, and he's, that the whole book is, is a rebuke of one sin after another, saying, listen, clean up your act. You're in Christ now. These, these, these things need to be done with. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it's, it, that true conversion results in a different direction in one's manner of life. I love this passage of Scripture. In verse number 9, it says, or 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the, inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor infeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says this in verse 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. You were something, now you're not that which you used to be. You're different, you're new. See, that's... That's the great thing about being a believer. If that newness is not there, then maybe you have to be correct in in what you understand, but if that newness is there, then you will go on in serving and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I'd like to do is, is answer a second question. And it's a little bit different, but it does have something to do with it because maybe of a misinterpretation of of the passage of Scripture. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. uh, Verse 11 through 15, where it says this. And the question is this. Can a Christian live a a holy, fruitless life and still be considered a true Christian? Meaning that they have no fruit at all. but they made a profession of faith, and therefore they, they would be a true Christian. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no man can lay a foundation other than that which, the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed by fire, And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on 
it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, some would say that, listen, a person, it looks like here, a person could really go through their whole life, uh, be examined, uh, but because of their profession of faith, they really don't have any, any kind of works to call for, and yet they're still saved, uh, but their works were burned up. Um, so, but that, is that what the passage of Scripture says? Well, I don't think so. I think the verse does not imply that a Christian can be devoid of fruit or works. In fact, it teaches the opposite, that every Christian will have works of some kind, of some sort. See, it's, but it's the works, the works may vary in quality. So in, before Christ, before the Bema Seed, everyone's works will be examined. It is not works for salvation. It is works after salvation as far as our service is concerned. So some people, some people's good works are cluttered with wrong motives or unbiblical methods. So our rewards will be different. But no true Christian will be utterly lacking in good works. Just, just as the parable of the sower I, I mentioned in Matthew chapter 13. When the seed fell on good soil, the man hears the word, understands it, and what? He bears fruit. People's fruit is different, all right? Some bring forth a uh, hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So there's going to be different level of fruit that we produce. There's going to be uh, different qualities of work each of us uh, will have before Christ, before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ for believers, not for unbelievers. And that's what it's talking about there. So necessarily, they, they, they do bear fruit. And if there is no fruit, there is no salvation. So the proof of salvation is fruit. The proof of salvation is works that God has given you to do. And it's our goal to have a quality of work that is pleasing to the Lord. So the Christian continues to grow in the Word of God. They don't become stagnant in the Word of God. They don't sit there and and not learn anything. But there has been an epidemic in our modern world uh, that uh, all you have to do uh, to be saved today is to raise a hand, to walk an aisle, to sign a card. And um, see, what, what really saves you is faith, not profession of faith because a a new category has been formulated in our day and that category would be carnal christian which means someone could have a profession of faith in christ with no fruit no manifestation of faith no works of faith and still be saved brethren please get this real faith manifests itself in genuineness by issuing in works. In other words, the manifestation of works proves your faith. Now, there's another place that I want to turn to before I close uh, this evening, and that is the third question. I'm just briefly touching these questions, and it's, is it possible to have faith without works or works without faith? 
Well, let's, let, let me clear up an issue real quick. In Romans chapter 4, or excuse me, Romans chapter 3, remember, Paul deals with justification by faith, and then the confusion comes in the way James deals with faith. And let's look at that for a minute, because they're both important, but both of them are teaching two different things. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, we maintain, Paul says, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. All right, now, who does Paul actually uh, put on view as proof of the doctrine of justification by faith? Who does he put on view? Well, look, look over to chapter 4 of Romans, verse 1 through 6. He puts on view Abraham, right? Look what it says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages is not credited as a favor, but what is due him. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So here, what he is doing is actually, Paul is quoting, giving us the story of Genesis chapter 15. Now I'd like you to turn to Genesis 15 and follow me, because this is important, because what Paul is saying, Paul is pointing to justifying faith before Abraham had any works. Now, that becomes very important. And what did Abraham do? Abraham simply believed God would give him a promised son. He simply trusted in what God said. Right? God said, because you trusted me in what I said, I'm going to justify you. Look what it says in Genesis 15. This is where he's quoting from. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. In verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and says, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord. This is what Paul is quoting and it was reckoned to him, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, what is it talking about here? Was Isaac born yet? Was Ishmael born yet? Was Isaac born yet? Nobody was born yet. Matter of fact, Abraham Ham, and Sarah were old already. They had no kids, and yet God is saying, you're going to be the father of, of many nations. So Abraham, once God spoke to him and says, and Abraham believed God before it actually happened that he would have a son. 
that very faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's justifying faith. Isn't that the kind of faith that we have when we believe in the message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for sinners and Jesus Christ rose from the dead and Jesus Christ is the one who can... Uh, has taken the wrath of God and who has taken the condemnation of our sin and paid for it on the cross. We, ha- we didn't see Christ. We, didn't, we, don't, we haven't seen the promise with our own eyes, but we know God tells the truth, and so we believe it by faith, right? And in that, the faith that God gives us, we're justified. Now, that can be apart at that point from any kind of works. But at the same time, James picks up the subject on the other side of the coin, if I can say it like that. This becomes vitally, vitally important. I want you to turn to James, and I want to go back to Genesis, because here's the difference, and here's, the, here's been the confusion uh, often about, wait a minute, the Catholic Church says, well, listen, you're justified by works. Uh, the Protestant faith and the Reformed faith, no, you're justified by faith alone apart from works, which is true. Well, they're both true, but look how they're true. All right, look how they're true. James chapter 2, verse 24, or verse 21 to 24, but look at verse number 24 of James chapter 2. This is his argument. It says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wait a minute. It sounds like he's saying something opposite of what Paul says. But, but, get this. What's, Paul, what's his proof? What's James's proof? Paul's proof was Abraham, right? Who's James's proof? Abraham. Wait a minute. How can, we have, how can we use the same guy as proof for what we teach? Well, look what it says in chapter 1, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he'd offered up Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result, the works, as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Verse 23 in the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. In verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, James' point is different, though, than Paul's. In fact, where James goes in Genesis is not to chapter 15 of Genesis. He goes to chapter 22 of Genesis. Let's go to chapter 22 and see what happens there of Genesis because what this is saying here, it shows that Abraham's faith was genuine by producing works that manifest that genuine faith that he had towards God. Look what it says in chapter 20, verse 22, verse 1, it says now, write down to verse 14, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he says, here I, here I am, and he says, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the lamb, land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, 
saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and says, My father, and he says, Here I am, my son. And he says, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 9, Then he came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. And he says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, isn't that interesting that James goes to Genesis chapter 22 or that portion of Genesis, and Paul goes to his initial faith, James goes to what? The works that proves his faith. In other words, this is, this is the bottom line. James is simply saying this. Anybody can say they have faith. Anybody can say that. Anybody can have a profession of faith. If you say you have faith... If your faith in Christ is genuine, it will manifest itself in works. It will manifest itself in fruit. It will manifest itself in what the Spirit of God is producing in you that will come out of you. That's his argument here. So, see, do you need works? Yes. Not to save you, but to prove you are saved. In fact... James did something one step beyond Abraham. He used another example. And it was pretty interesting what example he used because he used the example of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. And was Rahab justified by faith? Yes. Why? She simply believed that the spies who came would come and rescue her from the wrath of God because she hid those spies, and protected their life, and then they went off. For this is what James says about her. In the same way was not Rahab, chapter 1, verse 25, the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way? For just as the body is, the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So, again, what's the example? That here, 
is the proof that Rahab had trust in the God of Israel. She hid the spies. That was her work. Her work that substantiated what she believed in the true and living God. So see, a person really cannot go through life with just a profession of faith without a manifestation of works that prove you are a believer, that prove you do believe God, right? That's what the scripture is teaching, not only in these places, in other places that I don't even have time to mention tonight. So let me just conclude that there are only two biblical categories of people, natural, unsaved, not born again, unregenerate. That's one category with different synonyms. And then there's the spiritual the person who's saved, who's born again, who's regenerate by God's Spirit. Every Christian is carnal in the sense we all fight with the flesh all our Christian lives. But that is not a permanent category. That is not something you can go on for 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 years and still say you have a profession of faith in Christ and there's no proof that you're a believer. There's no evidence that proves that you actually believe God and follow his word. That's false sense of security that some may have because of that teaching. Also, I would say this, that every Christian will have works of some sort that will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ as to its quality. Christians will receive reward or loss of reward, not the loss of their salvation, That's what the Corinthian passage is teaching. And finally, real faith in Christ manifests its genuineness in issuing in works. Consequently, the carnal Christian philosophy that says even though there may be no proof of his or her salvation right up until the time of his or her life or death, because they made him a profession of faith and is saved, is incongruous with what the scripture plainly teaches. It's wrong. It's false. Just an overview. That I think every place we go in Scripture, we have to say that if God's done a work in your heart, it's got to come out of you. You just can't live the same old way you did, right? That's got to be the sense and what the that's what the, the Scripture is teaching in that regard. So, what happens to a believer? They bear fruit, give evidence of their salvation. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will be, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciple, right? So abiding in the word of God gives evidence that you are converted. Bearing fruit gives evidence that you are converted. James goes on to say, listen, trials prove your faith genuine. Because if you go through the trial and you're still living for the Lord, still seeking him out, still following him, it proves your faith, right? And so James goes on to say that faith is something that tests us, or trials are something that tests us to see that our faith is genuine. So you will have your faith tested. If you have not already, you will. And if you had it already, you will again, right? And all through our lives, our faith will be tested, right? And the proof is going to be we just keep following the Lord. We keep following his word. We keep seeking him out. We keep, we keep trusting him. And in doing so, it takes us right to the end of our life, per- perseverance of the saints, right? 
And that gives us the confidence that we are truly in Christ Jesus, that we are no longer in Adam, that we are truly saved and we're not, unsa- we're not unsaved or unregenerate, that we are, are truly people who are, are no longer the natural man, but are, uh, are the people that are born again in Christ Jesus. And so every day of our life, we display some evidence of repentance and faith in Christ, some genuine fruit-bearing, some desire to work for Christ and produce that in our life. That's there in us. We want to do something for the Lord. All right? And remember, I gave a message not, well, a while ago about what works are for believers. Works are anything. A cup of cold water to someone who needs it is a work. But you're doing it in the name of Christ. You're doing it because you're saved. You're doing it for the advancement of the kingdom of God. You're doing it often. If I give you water, maybe I have the possibility to give you the gospel too. Water may nourish you for a period of time. The gospel will nourish your soul and keep you for eternity, right? So we can feed people and they can die and go to hell, but what good is that? Let's feed them. Let's, let's do good work, but let's give them the gospel so they can believe and be saved, right? I want to do both. Let, let, let's endeavor to do both as believers. Anyway, just a little bit of an overview tonight. Uh, I'm done. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for just even some of these passages that we looked at. And I just pray, Lord, that we may even take them and examine our own life. That, Lord, even the day that we have trusted you as Lord and Savior, we do sometimes have our doubts, even about our own salvation. And we have our doubts many times, Lord, because of the trial that comes, that throws us off track, because of a sin that is just taking over our life and that we don't want it there, yet we have that struggle between the flesh and the spirit, and, but we want it out. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us every day to see how the Spirit of God is working in us. So, Lord, we don't spend the rest of our life doing our own thing in the flesh without any evidence. But I pray, Lord by our genuine faith in you, it would manifest itself in fruit. It would manifest itself in perseverance through thick and thin, through trial and good times. And it would take us right through our life. We would be abiding in the word of God, growing in the spirit, walking in the spirit, fighting with the flesh, witnessing the gospel to the world, showing the world the good works of Christ, the Father, and displaying the Father from heaven. And I pray, Lord Jesus, in the end, we would have a good quality of work to give unto you, that we would have much evidence to prove, and that others can see in our own life, for them to say about us, that person truly walked with Christ. They were truly a believer. And I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased with us in this manner. So, Lord, get us through the doubtful times. Get us through the struggling times. Get us through the trials. And I pray, Lord, when we do so, we would see you more clearly than ever. We would believe you more passionately than ever. And we would serve you with greater gusto than ever. So we thank you, Lord, again. Help us every day by your spirit. And I pray this. Amen.